Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to an extra special spooky episode of Caged in Presents Coppola Connections, uh, the podcast where we watch every single film in the collective Coppola family filmography to determine are they the greatest film family of all time. Halloween may be over once more for another year, but like the tagline of today's film, Love never dies, and neither does spooky season. So yeah, we're keeping the spooktacular train rolling with Francis Ford Coppola's 1992 uh, horny horror classic, Bram Stoker's Dracula. And as is ever that is the case, I have a guest joining me to help me determine this film help staple the Coppola's uh, against the cross as the greatest film family of all time or do they deserve to be staked through the heart as uh, evil against Hollywood um, and the guest this week is James Rodriguez who you may know from uh, Invasion of the Potty People where a monthly podcast from not just for kids podcast or yeah some of his film writing and such so yeah this one was a lot of fun could have happily have talked about this film for hours upon hours upon hours it's kind of just getting into the production and the way that this film is made is enough to uh just get lost down a rabbit hole but there's plenty of chat and plenty of fun we do spoil this movie as is ever the case but I guess all we've got left to do is make some Coppola connections. You join us this lonely and cold October evening in a castle situated in the Carpathian Mountains, as we discuss the 1992 adaptation of Bram Stoker's iconic horror novel. It is, of course, Francis Ford Coppola's dark, erotic, nightmare, gothic horror, 
Bram Stoker's Dracula, adapted to the screen by James V. Hart and directed by Big Daddy Francis himself. The film stars Gary Oldman, Winona Ryder, Keanu Reeves, Anthony Hopkins, Sadie Frost, Richard E. Grant, Carrie Elwes, Billy Campbell, and Tom Waits. And apart from Francis, we have a, another Coppola connection in this film. We have uh, his his son, his eldest son, Roman Coppola, who is the second unit director and somewhat like effects supervisor on this film. Uh, official credits are a bit muddy on that, but I'm sure we'll get into his involvement in this conversation. But trapped inside this Transylvanian castle alongside me, looking for a way out and helping me answer the ultimate question if the Coplas are the greatest film family of all time it's writer and podcaster James Rodriguez James do you renounce God oh I can't renounce something I never was a part of anyway <laughs> tonight I'm going to <laughs> amazing how are you are you well tonight? Ah, yes, I am particularly well this evening. I'm feeling quite spooky for this chat, which is about to unfold. And I'm excited. It's a good one. Yes, yes. It's uh, a lot a lot to talk about with this film. It's uh, kind of, uh, I don't know, I'm going to hold my chest close to my chest and not, not kind of, I could get carried away and dive into talking about this film immediately. But We've got a little bit of housekeeping to do before we get to that. And as we do at the start of this podcast all the time, is uh, I like to ask my guests a simple question. When did you become aware of the Coppola family? Was there an entry point, like a person? And then when did you kind of realise there is this kind of like vampiric Dracula-esque lineage that they have? Okay, so like any burgeoning film fan, I was aware of Francis as I grew up. How could you not be with The Godfather and Apocalypse Now? But everywhere in a conversation. And I did. I was also aware he had a daughter, Sophia, who appeared in Godfather Part 3 and also got her own directing career. I knew there was... Gia was making films also, and I did become aware Nicolas Cage was a part of that lineage but i must admit i had no idea how massive a family tree it was until you and your podcast made me aware so it's all <laughs> down to you oh man I'm, I'm i'm doing a, i'm doing a service to people i like to feel i like to feel like even even people i i, I deem as hardened film fans are, are learning um even even yesterday somebody messaged me saying I did not realise Jason Schwartzman was a part of this family. I'm like, welcome to the club. Like, welcome, welcome. There is, there's weird and wonderful connections throughout this family. And uh, I never besmirch anyone for not knowing, like, the knowledge I know on the Coppola family. Because, hey, if, 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 if people are going to get involved and learn about them, uh, come along for the ride. Like, learn as I learn. <laughs> um, so... Have you ever met a Coppola, James? Oh no, no. Actually, what was what was what was that first? Do you remember? Actually, no. You said you said Francis was your entry point. I don't want to. Oh, we'll get to we'll get to what your first uh, Francis film was in a moment. But have you ever met a Coppola? 
Not that I know of, but <laughs> to be honest, there's so much, there's so many in the family. I may have met one without realizing. For all I know, I stood in a queue and um, Jackie Coppola or Thomas Coppola or someone was right in front of me. For all I know, it's I suppose don't know until you actually realize. But for now, I'd like to think, sure, I met one and I didn't know. Okay, okay, well, yeah, maybe, maybe, yeah. I guess, I guess, if you kind of, I don't know, are in are in central London, any major city long enough, you'll bump into one of them for sure. So you mentioned Francis was your entry point to the family. Uh, I must ask you, what would have been the first Francis Ford Coppola film you would have actually seen? You obviously talked about a, an awareness of his films, and uh, especially that kind of seventies run. But wh- how old were you when you first kind of? I don't know, watched one of his films, and what what was that film? (laughs) It's fascinating, the amount of films Francis Ford Coppola is known for. And the very first film I ever saw was as a young boy when Jack was on the TV, which is an interesting entry point. It's Mm -hmm. an odd film to look back on. Yes. But, yeah, I can't deny it wasn't The Godfather, it wasn't The Conversation, it wasn't any of his big hitters. It was Robin Williams as a 10-year-old boy. Have Have you revisited that film at all in later life? N- no. Um, maybe if I decide to do a Coppola deep dive, because I have a lot of blind spots in his filmography, then I'll revisit <laughs> it. But for now, it's just that odd film I watched as a kid. Yeah. Yeah, I'm kind of I'm dreading the day I have to cover it because uh, I I I fear it will not hold up at all. I remember I remember vividly enjoying it as a kid, but I think that's just the novelty of a kid who grew up too quick and kind of got to live in two worlds of being an adult and being a child at the same time. But I don't know. Yeah, I guess that's what what a lot of us with I don't know. I, maybe I'm speaking for myself here. Um, what we want, right? We want to look like adults, but still get away with the things we're doing as kids. We want to be like, we want no consequences for our actions. And we want to just be able to, ah, it'll be fine. Someone else will deal with that. <laughs> um, so let's, let's get extra spooky-ooky-ooky with it. And let's talk about Bram Stoker's Dracula. But before we do, let's have a little listen to the trailer. Here occurred the frightening and shocking history of Prince Dracula and the woman he loved. I have crossed oceans of time to find you. Yeah, Dracul. There is a sinister, darker side to him. I find irresistible. I've never met any man with such a passion for life. He is unlike any man. What are you? Vampires do exist. This one we fight, this one we face. Can take on many forms. He is both young and old. He can appear as mist as vapor, as the fog, and he can vanish at will. Oh, my love. 
power of his evil desire has no end. You got to go to him. You got to love him. She is a willing recruit and devoted disciple. She is the devil's concubine. Join me in the eternal life. Your salvation is his destruction. mistake. He must be stopped. So this film was released November 13th, 1992. So we are fast approaching its 30th anniversary. Uh, made on a budget of $40 million and made a box office return of $215.9 million. So very much uh, a win for France Ford Coppola uh, during uh, maybe a, some would say, a, a, a following a, a rough patch in his career. So uh, there's there's that. But James, do you mind taking the duty of telling us what Bram Stoker's Dracula is all about? Bram Stoker's Dracula is adapted from the classic 1897 novel Dracula by Bram Stoker so that makes sense of the title and it's about young Jonathan Harker an estate agent I believe who's looking to do business get a promotion and do business with a, a, a creepy figure called Cult Dracula but Dracula has his own designs on Jonathan's bride, Mina, and and she bears a striking resemblance to his long-lost love, Elisabetta. So he sets out to woo her in his own way, no matter who he has to slaughter to get. Well, that is a that is a brilliant setup. That is a yeah. That is that is kind of the nuts and bolts of the setup of this film but it is it's is so much more than that it takes twists and turns and goes into weird and wonderful places and kind of um is like this beautiful encapsulation of 20th century cinema techniques and kind of i don't know uh everything that's done in this yeah in this melange uh so when did you first see this film? Did you? I, I imagine you're a similar age to me, so wouldn't have seen it on first run. But um, what are your kind of memories of it growing up? And like, did 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 you see it quite young, or did you come to it later on? Well, I didn't see this at the time of release because on the day it was released, I was ten days old. Lovely stuff. Which would would have made it difficult, but <laughs> not impossible. Um, I'd like to take you back to a faraway time when I first saw this. Uh, it was 13 days ago when it was 
re-released in cinemas and that was literally the first time I saw this film ever and it was something which I knew of through pop culture particularly the Simpsons Treehouse of Horror parody Ooh, super fun happy death slide and I (laughs) chose this because it felt like a big blind spot of mine which I heard so much about and I'm a fan of vampires and I really wanted to discuss this. So I thought, why not? Let's finally get that sucker watched. Pun intended, I'm, I'm assuming. Um, so oh, yeah. if, if, if obviously this was your first time, um, how like, what were your kind of relationship to the tellings of, of the Dracula story? Like had you read Bram Stoker's book? Had, like what kind of film adaptations had you dived into before getting to this one? Okay, adaptations of Dracula-wise, well, I have read Bram Stoker's book. I finished that earlier this year, but I'll be honest with you. It took me a while because the book has ebbs and flows with my interest, particularly in that middle section. It just lost me a bit, and it just became a book which I put off finishing. Well, can you tell us about the... the, Stubborn, so I made my way through. What is the format of that book? Because it's quite, it's, it's obviously, I think it's translated onto the screen quite well, but it's, if, 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 if I'm remembering correctly, um, it's, it's told in like diary entries, right? Yes, exactly. Um, it's told through the perspective of many characters. There's um, Mina, there's Jonathan Harker, um, Abraham Van Helsing. I believe Sir Arthur Homewood and James Sewer uh, as well, the Doctor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. through their diary entries. Mm. Yeah, there's quite a few diary entries, and it's that's translated onto the screen, and it feels like it comes from such a place of reverence, which Coppola has for the original novel. Um, when he was working as a camp counselor, he used to get the boys in their bunks and read it to them in its entirety. Uh, which must have been yeah must have been a long night um but it's just fascinating how much he what he was really in in intrigued by that book i mean there's the popular story that at the first cast meeting all of the principal cast read the entire novel out loud to get a feel for the story which um sir anthony hopkins says took two whole days to complete but yeah, it does yeah. feel like yeah, it's, it's co- all translated to a screen well. It's like, it feels like it comes from a real place of love. Yeah, and the, I, I think it's like, uh, it, to that to that point of them reading the novel aloud, Francis Ford Coppola just has this thing he does with a lot of his, well, all of his casts is he rehearses with them. I'm not sure whether he's still doing it nowadays. I know he's like just started filming on... Uh, Megaropolis, uh, his newest film, where he took the people away for a couple of weeks. But yeah, they spent two weeks at his like Napa Valley estate and kind of like played games, like acting games, and kind of like improvised the scenes and really chewed upon, like got everyone to yeah, as you said, read the book kind of in a, like a round table um, like format. And his like reasoning is like, I want as early on in production for people, if they're going to have those epiphanies, what this kind of film is all about or what it is for them, I want them to have it 
nice nice and uh, like early doors i don't want it to be like halfway through and they're still like what is my character's motivation like why is this so i think an exercise like reading the book together and especially in that way that it is i had i would imagine he would have got the cast members who were assigned to the different characters to read their their like diary entries Mm. so that must have some like insight that yeah like they can internalize some of that to make their characters i don't know a lot more embodied and well-rounded than it would be just to be like yeah this is this is what we're going to do and there's a lot of stuff of this film as well that's um i don't think there's close to like 30 minutes of kind of like deleted and like extended scenes and stuff like that so yeah there is a there is a bit more to this and um so is it yeah in regards to my initial question what were the yeah what were the other adaptations of uh dracula that you on screen that you had seen well um i had seen the bella lugosi version and Mm -hmm. the christopher lee version i'd also seen dario argento's dracula 3d which (laughs) if you want to it's if you want a version of dracula to watch not that one it somehow makes dracula turning into a giant praying mantis boring okay yeah yeah it's a feat in its own right um i'd also seen nosferatu which is the unofficial dracula yes uh, adaptation which was phenomenal in its own right um i think those are the main ones i've seen um uh, actual adaptations of the novel oh i suppose dracula dead and loving it as well (laughs) a spoof of this 92 film than the novel itself yeah so what um how do you feel like that let's get this out of the way like of the kind of adaptations you've watched like which is the most faithful to the novel itself is it this one is this the one that kind of nails it obviously it's it's baked into the title right this is bram stoker's dracula this isn't just another dracula tale in regarding to let's say the big mainstream adaptations probably it must be the most um faithful it feels like it takes it well it adapts the diary elements it goes with the idea of dracula begins as a white-haired old man who grows more youthful as he drinks more and more blood and it goes against traditional expectations of vampires, like Dracula's able to move in the sunlight. Mm-hmm. It feels like Coppola is adhering to the novel with reverence, but he's not shackled by it. He puts his own spin on it by also including, say, the opening, where it goes into the history of Vlad, the man who would become Count Dracula. And it's it's phenomenal the way he marries those two for this film mm-hmm. and i i think some of it's got to obviously yeah some of it's got to be put on the shoulders of um james v hart as well the the the, the script mm-hmm. writer for this film and this is an interesting one how this kind of fell onto francis ford coppola's lap as well it was actually like a chance is it what like a planned meeting he had with winona Ryder because she was supposed to star as mary corleone in the godfather mm-hmm. part three and I think they just had a meeting to kind of, I don't know, uh, 
clear the air, squash the beef, just in case there's any bad blood, because she left the project quite late on. And on departure, she said to Francis, like, oh, yeah, uh, by the way, like, do you want to look at this script? And he's like, uh, like kind of thing. And she said, yeah, it's, 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 it's Dracula. And she said, like, she saw his, like, kind of eyes light up, like you kind of said earlier. It's something that he absolutely adored and, like, was fascinated by. And he kind of, he's openly said there's great kind of behind-the-scenes footage on the Blu-ray of this where it's, he goes into the he goes into the fact that a lot of the other adaptations are really fast and loose with the novel, like even mm. like down to like it's whatever suits. Like all of a sudden, Lucy is Jonathan Harker's like wife. Like this person, like there's characters who are completely omitted and stuff like that. And I think um, Anthony Hopkins said like, what's great about having all of the characters there is you realise that they're kind of all different sides of the same coin they're all obsessed like how mm. dracula's obsessed with mina they're all obsessed about something and it's kind of you need that ensemble to really really drive that aspect home and yeah from from my reading obviously like i don't have time to go watch every single dracula adaptation uh <laughs> But from what I've kind of read and gleamed from other places, this very much is like the kind of most faithful adaptation to the book. It's got to be right. The the title itself is Bram Stoker's Dracula. Like that's a ballsy move. That's kind of going, this ain't just Dracula. Like this is the book come to the script. So what were your thoughts? Yeah, obviously you watched this 13 days ago. What were your like kind of... What like thoughts? Did you have any expectations going into this film at all? Um, I don't know what I was expecting. Really, I just thought it's a film that was massive uh, for so long. It was a it's a Francis Ford Coppola film, so I expected it to at least be some form of a work of art. And I, what I received in the experience was something so sensual and poetic. It felt like it was made by a romantic soul from very real places of love. And I think, I think you can argue that is Francis Ford Coppola. I think if you strip back the violence of the Godfather, it's somebody who kind of, has a has a romantic <laughs> edge. He, he loves family and stuff like that. The kind of beating heart for a lot of his films is is family. Like <laughs> he obviously met. Yeah, he's he's had these wild follies, whether it is Apocalypse Now and stuff like that. But yeah, I've, I, I I I I think if you kind of peel the layers back of the guys, he's 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 an old romantic at heart. That's very fair, I suppose. Uh, but. Uh... But with that, I was also surprised at how it's a film that managed to be quite horrific and very horny at the centre of it. Oh yeah, this is this is this is a big old horn dog film. I absolutely love mm. it for that. Like this is like I'm trying to think. I like because my, my my like early memories of this film, I that kind of poster artwork, that original artwork for this, it's like ingrained in my brain. Like I remember seeing it mm-hmm. as a kid, like being like, 
whoa, what is that? Like, it almost looks like Tombstone-esque. And, like, the, the Dracula, like, written in blood. And I was like, oh, what is, like, what is that? Whether it's, like, seeing it in the video shop, you know I mean, on a higher shelf, being, like, mm. I'd kind of cower away from it and stuff like that. Do you, do you have, like, any... Yeah, do you remember it kind of being out in the world when you were growing up and kind of see like any like I don't know reactions to that to that artwork or ever having glimpses of it on um, TV or anything? Um, the artwork was very ingrained in my memory. It's definitely one of those posters which I seem to remember being uh being around like maybe from the video in seeing the video in blockbuster on the shelf or um but it's also gary oldman himself just the image of him either um, either with the long black hair and the sunglasses and the top hat like he's some 19th century slash wannabe or (laughs) the big red kimono and the extravagant hairstyle that looks like he's modeled it after a pair of breasts it just feels like whichever image of gary oldman it feels like that's been a massive pop culture Mm. element that just persevered for a while and in some ways it feels like the last truly iconic take on count dracula because after gary oldman who is there probably adam sandler in hotel transylvania would have been the closest uh, luke evans in dracula untold uh <laughs> uh yeah yeah luke, luke yeah luke got that existed in all honesty yeah well, which has been covered here on this podcast has a, has a copla connection that film so uh so yeah that has that has been discussed uh on this very here podcast it's not a good film um didn't look it. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about yeah, yeah let's dive into the cast of this film because it's uh mm-hmm. there's a lot to talk about in that cast uh let's get let let let's get him out of the way big old keanu reeves what did you make of keanu reeves in this film and uh that wandering accent of his i like keanu reeves but oh poor Keanu he just feels so miscast here and it doesn't help that Jonathan Harker doesn't tend to be the most engaging character in Dracula but Keanu his accent wanders across the pond across centuries it feels like he's struggling a bit with that and Coppola's been open that he needed a hot young star to connect with the female film goers and i don't begrudge him for casting keanu but i just didn't work in my eyes and it's a shame well what do you what do you think of the fact that like christian slater was offered the role and turned it down would he have been better or worse as jonathan harker christian slater that's not a bad idea actually i don't know what his british accent's like but i don't know i feel like when you see christian slater he can input like a kind of danger or bad boy in his performance which kind of gives him a bit of an edge and 
I don't know. Maybe that could have helped with, but uh, I like the idea, but I don't know if he would have measured up is the only thing because mm-hmm. you can it, only theorize on so, so much. Yeah, what would have been great is obviously if that if that if that role had gone to like an unknown, I could imagine someone great like Tim Roth, like fitting into that Jonathan. Keep, like get a nice get get somebody who can handle the accent. Do you know what I mean? Like uh, he he is British after all, uh, and then like and and he's proved in yeah he yeah he'll do a hokey American accent elsewhere. Reservoir Dogs, uh, um, but yeah I, I yeah Keanu Reeves in this. It's kind of there is a moment particularly when he sees Dracula uh, when he returns to London. He basically sounds like his Bill and Ted character when he's like, Whoa, it's the same dude. You might as well be like, Whoa, it's the same dude, but he's younger. Like, it's it, there is so much kind of it's it's like he couldn't shake off that Californian twang for this film at all, like, uh, at times. And, um, I don't bless him. Bless him. Bless Winona Ryder as well. Because, yeah, what do you think of Winona Ryder's accent in this? Um, I heard a bit about Winona Ryder's accent going before this film, much uh-huh. as I did Keanu. But maybe it's just because with Keanu, I was like, it's one thing to hear about it and another thing to hear it in a wild, mm-hmm. to hear him just go, I know where the bastard sleeps. <laughs> but I didn't think Winona's... I didn't think Winona's herself was that bad. I mean, I think she fit the role well of mm-hmm. is someone who wishes to be adored as her best friend is, who seems disgu- disgusted as such images of carnal pleasures. Mm-hmm. But when Vlad pays her attention, lavishes her with such adoration, it seems to awake a longing inside her. And I think Ryder plays that really well. And I, it's funny how the film essentially turns into, feels like a love triangle with Jonathan being the safe option and Vlad is the bad boy. Yeah. And it's with the romantic at heart here's a question i've got on my uh notes here which is is jonathan harker the original cuck <laughs> um i suppose someone had to be um uh i su- <laughs> i suppose because yeah, he probably gets film, cuckolded in this, I doesn't could he? See that. He um, just gets he just gets kind of like sidelined where she's like Yeah. Like by the end they're married and she's like, No, I must be with Dracula. It's like, oh no, you've literally just come back to London and she's running away with another man. Um so yeah, we got, got the accents out of the way. I felt like that was something we need to tick off nice and early. So yeah, back to that cast. So Gary Oldman. Mm-hmm. Um, I personally think Gary Oldman is phenomenal in this film. Like the way that kind of mm-hmm. even amongst all of that kind of prosthesis and he's under a lot of prosthesis throughout this. Uh, there's an amazing moment of him 
in the behind the scenes footage where he kind of like starts to talk about all of the different makeups he's in throughout the film and all the different versions of Dracula he has to play. He's like, I'm kind of like really old Dracula. I'm kind of decrepit Dracula. I'm, I'm, do you know I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm the one in the castle. I'm wolf Dracula. I'm kind of, I'm, I'm vapor Dracula. I am like fucking, I'm, I'm, I'm a body of rats Dracula. I'm bat Dracula. I'm all of these. I'm all, I'm, I'm all of these. And like he, he said as well, like he found this one of, I guess around the time found it the most physically demanding role he had ever done because mm-hmm. it's just so much like putting stuff on and kind of getting mm-hmm. under all of this kind of gloop and goo to play the part. But what is amazing, I think, about Gary Oldman in this is you can see, like, not in the way of like it's bad prosthetics and that you can see it's still a person under there. It feels like when mm-hmm. when you first meet Dracula, uh, when well, Jonathan Harker does, obviously we meet him earlier on in the film, but when we first meet Dracula, all caps Dracula, he's, he's living, he's breathing. Like you can kind of, you can, you would hate to be touched by those like decrepit old fingers and stuff like that. Like you almost recoil like i just think and like he, he plays it so i tell you he's totally i think i think throughout this film i think everyone seems to be like on the same page of what like what the brief is do you know what i mean they're all kind of like this is the tone of the film and we're gonna nail it and gary oldman gary oldman does absolutely Absolutely nail it. What do you, what do you kind of, yeah, is there like standout moments for you of Gary Oldman's performance? What do you, what do you make of it as a whole as well? Um, he's phenomenal. It's no wonder so many people took to him. Um, for one, look at him when he's younger. Holy mm-hmm. shit. Uh, Coppola didn't need Reeves to capture that. The, female perspective as he wanted because fucking Al Oldman is a babe as a younger Dracula but it's not just that it's that he's he's a gives a phenomenal presence and he hired a singing coach to help him lower his voice by an octave because he wanted Dracula to have a more sinister quality Mm -hmm. and it works you hear his playful laugh when he's seeing how Jonathan Harker's reacting to Dracula's brides feasting on that baby. Yeah. Or the the pauses Dracula takes when he's emphasizing specific words for dramatic effect. Uh-huh. It's he's a man that's having a bit of fun with his bloody business. And yes, he's under a lot of prosthetics, which is phenomenal by the way. Uh-huh. Coppola was insistent to not use any elaborate special effects or computer trickery, and that works because it holds up extremely well. But Oldman's performance really shines through it all. I remember when For the Dark World came out and Christopher Eccleston was the villainous role in that film, and he said acting under prosthetics was like washing your feet with your socks on. (laughs) And you get none of that from Oldman's performance because he it's like he's wearing the 
is essentially the prosthetics as a second skin and he's not letting it inhibit how what kind of performance he's got to put mm-hmm. and uh, he's just absolutely phenomenal yeah Dracula. and i know i know that him and copra at times didn't see eye to eye but it was like really like oldman was kind of like i kind of like it he's like we don't he's like i kind of want what i want like he wants what he wants like again there's great kind of footage of them like butting heads and stuff like that and they're kind of like duking it out and oldman found it really hard in that kind of armor he has to wear at the beginning of the film as well and like he said like Mm. i can hardly fucking walk in this and then just got to a point he's like you know what i don't care if i kind of like damage the suit i'm just gonna i'm just gonna act now i'm just going to like do what I need to do. Like, cause at, at, at this moment, it feels like the suit is wearing me and it shouldn't feel like that. It should, I, I should be wearing it and like kind of, yeah, then kind of brings it to life. And it, this is a, I don't know, like an interesting point in like Gary Oldman's career. Right. Cause he kind of mm. wasn't massive, massive yet. And it's kind of like from, I don't know, it kind of, been in a lot of like british stuff do you know what i mean or like he'd been yeah mm-hmm. sid vicious and sid and nancy he'd kind of quite au fait with the bad boy i i would say and uh yeah i think he just kind of considering like somebody could this feels like a a, a role that somebody could get lost in their own ass up do you know what i mean like i could <laughs> look yes. at look at look at a recent um uh a, 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 yeah somebody who has played a vampire very recently and kind of uh, <laughs> decided to, uh, yeah, to, to fuck shit up. To suck. Yeah, whereas Gary Old... <laughs> again, was that a pun intended there, I'm assuming, James? Hell yeah. Uh, uh, whereas here, yeah, Gary Oldman kind of... And he, he kind of... He gets the romanticism. Like, he has openly said, um, there is a line in this film that he read and was like, I want to do the film on that basis. And it's when mm-hmm. he says to Mina, I've crossed oceans of time to find you. And like, he's like, the fact I get to say that to someone, I'm doing this film. And it's like, God, give it, God, 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 give it up to you, Gary. And it's, it's really fascinating watching footage of him, like behind the scenes. Uh, Cause he like shaved the front of they shaved the front of his hair <laughs> so his hairline obviously like when he's dracula he's kind of got the mad hairline but uh yeah like in some of the behind the scenes stuff maybe like it hasn't been shaved yet like so it's a bit stubbly at the front of his head <laughs> and stuff like that um let's kind of like whip through the rest of the cast cuz i feel like we could be okay. here all night kind of just discussing the cast obviously we'll there's a couple I feel like we might need to give a little bit of um, breathing time, but we can kind of we can kind of jump back into some of them, and they'll get their shine when we kind of talk about specific scenes and stuff like that. But I mm-hmm. guess I guess one person we really have to mention here is Anthony Hopkins, somebody who I think is like uh, the MVP of this film. I think Anthony Hopkins like is having a fucking ball. And I don't know why, so many times, like, I've kind of watched this in quick succession a few times this year, uh, but there was a big gap in my, my watching history of this film. 
and maybe like last year I watched it again and um I'd kind of forgotten that Anthony Hopkins is in this film and then like when he appeared I was like fucking hell and like like when he's on screen he kind of takes the air out of the room in like the best kind of way it's kind of like oh, it's the anthony hopkins show now um yeah what do you make of his performance as a professor abraham van helsing um i quite like his take on abraham and van helsing it's he's the man of medicine who takes it seriously but he's also as serious about matters of the unknown and it constantly feels like the character's teetering on the edge of sanity. And while he's not smoothing down the edges, a it's like uh, when he, Mina's being asked about Lucy's death and he's very blunt about, oh yeah, she suffered, absolutely. And it's a funny moment, but it's also that he gets right down to this iteration of how he's just business first and he's absolutely going to ensure that it gets done as as greatly as he can because he's not there to waste time just just um smoothing down the edges for for um the people to ask he's just gonna go go right in there and yeah i I don't blame anthony hopkins for having a ball in this role because just a year before he won the Oscar for Silence of the Lambs. Mm-hmm. I mean, I suppose you'd be having a ball at the sa- if the same thing happened. Yeah, yeah. I don't like he. He's he's really interesting. Look, he said like he found Coppola's approach. He said like when they were rehearsing and stuff like that. Like he said he'd come from like the British stage and like the British films stuff like that. Whereas there's like foundations for everything everything's kind of really like mapped out and he said like when he kind of got to the rehearsal stage of Coppola they were still kind of working stuff out like Coppola like famously said to everyone like you all know the book is there stuff in the book that we're kind of we're missing (laughs) like if so let us know and we'll kind of add it to the script and like he was really open to suggestions it was like Anthony Hopkins suggestion that when Van Helsing first meets Mina, that he like grab her and dance with her. And there's again, great footage of that happening for the, I'd imagine the first time and like Francis Ford Coppola's eyes lighting up and it's like, Oh yeah. I'm kind of getting to, to play with somebody who like kind of gets it. Like we kind of want to make this the best thing it can be. And like Anthony, Anthony Hopkins seemed really game for that. And like, I'd, I'd, that's what I'd say about his performance. It's very like, it's very game. And I'm not sure how it was in the screening you went to. Cause I recently saw this in the cinema as well. It's like his, his line deliveries got like laughs in the screening. I was in though. I think one mm. in particular, is at Lucy's wake and uh, he's, he's speaking to Richard E. Grant's character and says, uh, he says like, get your autopsy knives. He's like, it's like, what? We're doing, we're doing an autopsy tonight? And he's like, no, we're going to cut her head off and stake through her, put a stake through her heart. And like everyone in the screening I was in absolutely lost their minds for that one. I was like, oh yeah, it's kind of interesting watching with, with an audience going, yeah, that, that is actually... There are actually some laughs in this movie as well. Mm, yeah, that was the biggest laugh in my screening as well. Um, I think there was also a few when um, when he's just being blunt at dinner with Lucy uh, about how Mina suffered. No, 
No, he's at the dinner with Mina, Mina. about how yeah. Lucy suffered. Where before Keanu Reeves goes, Doctor, please. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so let's talk about. Yeah, obviously we're kind of skirting around some of the scenes in this. Um, mm. What are kind of some of the the standout scenes and set pieces? Because this is very like set piece heavy, right? There is kind of there's a lot to chew over and like a lot to marvel at and considering this film is 30 years old it kind of there's something about the filmmaking and like like we touched on earlier with you saying like they steer away from kind of effects in the kind of way that they would have been done at the time leaning towards digital and stuff like that like this is very much mm. old timey almost like i don't know like early era cinema stuff do you know what I mean like you got like rear projection false perspective kind of any tricks they could kind of pull out of the bag do you know what i mean matte, matte painting matte boxes mm-hmm. all, all all types of front projection rear, all the kind of everything you can do they were kind of like let's kind of throw it at this film um but yeah like what are some of the scenes that kind of stand out to you when you think of this film um, the f- one first one which really st- stands out for me was the opening prologue recounting Vlad's bloody history, <laughs> and you've got the skylines which look hand pa- pa- hand painted, <laughs> and it looks like it's a puppet show going on as they use shadows and dolls to show essentially the order impaling that Vlad did. Yeah, particularly one which is looks like Nosferatu in the background. Yeah, that stuff's really great. I love that kind of silhouetted sequence at the beginning. Like, and I think again, like this film was like it's really fascinating to the way that they kind of they storyboarded this film absolutely like out the wazoo. Kind of came across that idea in the storyboarding. Like, oh, we do like this, and a fantastic storyboard artist Peter Ramsey was working like really like closely with Roman Coppola as kind of who kind of knew as well when he was kind of coming up with the ideas of how shot like things would be, he would kind of be knowing practically how that was going to be done. Like in regards to the, the, the effects they would use, like whether it is or yeah, like the dissolves they'd use. Like there's that great, um, great moment where it kind of goes from Mina's eye to a glass of like absinthe and, there's mm. the peacock feather into the tunnel and stuff like that. Like Roman Coppola was kind of like on top of all of that whilst they're coming at the storyboards. But I don't know. There's something. There's something to to, to the idea of like Kabuki theater to this film in like in the way that Kabuki theater will use any aspect of the kind of staging for a production to tell the story. And it feels like this film, more than many I can think of, does that in the way that, like, the costume design is telling a story, telling a part. Do you know what I mean? If that needs to tell yeah. part of the story, it will. The the sets, the kind of the the lighting, the music, the the effects and stuff like that, like the kind of yeah, the or or the cameras that are even used will be a part of the storytelling, like everything feels like it's kind of 
in service of the plot and the story and it all makes sense and what's 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 great about that sequence you mentioned as well is when peter ramsey spoke to this is he felt that that kind of silhouetted sequence really brings the audience into the to the world that coppola's like created for this film and that like he's kind of setting the template of like this isn't like the <laughs> the real world this is kind of this sub fantasy kind of like i don't know yeah as coppola like said it's this kind of dark erotic nightmare world that he's created and i think i think that sequence at the beginning like you mentioned is really brings us into what this film is going to be and i think i've I've, I've seen people like pull out like just single frames of that that silhouetted sequence and it's like Mm. you could hang that on your wall it just looks it looks so beautiful like it's 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 such a beautiful looking film um what other yeah like what other moments or kind of uh i could yeah i could just gush over this film james you've got me going now (laughs) i don't blame you um what you said about this erotic nightmare reminds me of the scene when i believe it's in jack's room in the asylum Mm -hmm. and dracula and mina are in an embrace and Mina's uh Mina's begging Dracula to take to turn her to free her from all this death and he's reluctant because well he knows the curse of the life he lives and he doesn't want to inflict that upon her but she begs and begs and it's quite an erotically charged moment yeah. particularly when uh, Mina is just drinking from the wounds dracula makes and then when all the guys walk into the room and dracula has turned into that giant bat monster it's phenomenally horrific Mm -hmm. and it it has my favorite moment in the film when he's the bat monster he moves into the shadows and no cuts the light is shone and his body's been replaced by all those rats just in the same position and it's such an effective moment and when i saw that in the cinema i was as soon as he moved into the shadows i was just like oh god what's gonna happen now and then as soon as the rats came on i was like oh my god that's gross i love it how did that because it's like there's probably like one traditional jump scare in this and it's when they first enter the room and you see that bat face just kind of like burst Mm. onto the screen did that did that get you or did that like did you see a reaction in the screening you're into that at all um i don't think i saw a reaction to from other audience members but it did make me jump because see mina just on her own as i was just wondering like wait are we looking in the mirror or something and then the bat face just comes up i was like oh shit that 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 sequence is really great and i um Mm. there is that there is a technique or there's a fit like francis ford coppola they, they were kind of figuring out that literally on set like how that scene was going to play out for some of it and what they got what they got gary oldman to do to kind of set the tone is they blindfolded everyone in the room 
and then Gary Oldman just, just given license to like whisper dark things in their ears to make everyone feel unsettled. And like Gary Oldman's in an interview going like, oh, like you don't do that. You don't do that with me. Like I'm going to relish that opportunity. Like, and they've all gone on record being like, yeah, he was saying like some unrepeatable things to us like you cannot repeat like the things that gary oldman was saying because they were like they, they were dark <laughs> as fuck um but it's that, that 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 is great like the kind of confrontation between him and van helsing and like there's that great line isn't there where he's like because van helsing's going on about god and kind of like flashing his his cross at him and he bursts it into flames and trying to he's like look what your God has done to me. And it's like, yeah. like, <laughs> like and, and back to that kind of first moment you talk about of the kind of erotically charged like sequence. The film like almost like shifts at that point and you kind of like, I don't know, there's a thing of like, you, 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 you have that like revelation where it's like, I've secretly been rooting for this meaner Dracula relationship in a weird way. And it's kind of like all of that empathy and pathos kind of comes out in that moment to, towards his character specifically, because he's so like, it's like, he is just, he is cursed at the end of the day. It's kind of like he did this. Yeah. He kind of, and, and, uh, I, I, I don't quite get how, how he like even even though this film does have that prologue, I still don't quite understand how he became a vampire because it's just like what did he, did he choose by renouncing God? Like like is that how you do it? Is that how you become the first vampire? You just renounce God and stab a sword into a cruce into a cross and like it will bleed like I, I, I don't quite know but I'm kind of I'm, I'm, I'm here for I, it at the same time I, I suppose crosses don't tend to bleed so I suppose that's the workaround for it's not like any of us can renounce God um, so I suppose that's what set it apart for Dracula to be this undead creature of the night yeah that's true so um, any yeah any other, any other scenes that really stick in your mind that we 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 haven't discussed, or I don't know, um, any particular characters? Um, I really like the sequence when um, Van Helsing takes all the guys to go into Lucy's resting place, but she's not in the coffin, and oh. she comes down, and they. It's for me, it's the bit where she's getting back into the coffin, which it was a shot that was actually filmed in reverse. So yeah. they filmed her getting out of the coffin, but played it so it was happening uh, backwards. And it adds this really eerie and unnatural quality to, uh, that's really creeps me out. And it, I think it works extremely well how it's also got uh, just. Lucy vomiting that blood and then it's just ending with her getting decapitated so grisly. I think it's just a just a killer sequence in the at this film. Yeah, it's really great. I, I really love that. I really love that bit. And like even down to when she comes down the stairs and like the candles come on 
that was shot in reverse. That like all it is is them blowing out the candles mm. and then just putting it in reverse, like to and it's something creepy about it's just like, yeah, this like and the, the the costume she's in as well. She almost looks like a lizard with that kind of big like wreath around her neck. And I know that um Sadie Frost kind of had like other ideas for how she wanted Lucy to move when she was kind of in her vampiric state, but like the costume didn't allow for it. Like she'd been doing training with like gymnasts to kind of walk kind of like backwards or almost like how the, how the, the brides of Frankenstein, uh, Frankenstein, the brides of Dracula move in the way that they're kind of, you know, like they're all kind of contortion, like, yeah, move like contortionists and stuff like that, and like limbs and all stuff like that. She kind of wanted to move in that way, but I think it's still effective. I think she's kind of, she's kind of, yeah, what do, what do you make of, what, what do you make of Lucy Frost, uh, Lucy Frost, Sadie Frost in this? Obviously she kind of, she, she, I've, I, she, she's, she's kind of interesting. She gets to all caps act, I think, in this film, and it's kind of it's, it's really fun. <laughs> all caps act is a good way to put it. It's um, um, I think she fits the role well because as she's in her human form, she I believe she's described as the um, essentially the rich friend who has no filter. So she's always essentially trying to woo these men uh while mina is just like oh goodness gracious yes but and oh i'm just a bit <laughs> my mind's stuck on her saying i'm almost 20 i'm practically a hag and <laughs> here i am here i am a week from turning 30 and i'm just like fuck you <laughs> yeah i guess that was a sign of the times right they all they all lived a lot less so it's kind of like that yeah that was basically middle age in those days <laughs> oh dear god if you weren't married at 14 you're a nobody uh, <laughs> yeah no uh She's and I love I love the kind of like because it's through her we get introduced to that that like kind of rabble of suitors she has. So we have what Jack Seward, Lord Arthur Holmwood, and Quincy P. Morris. There's kind of mm. we, that become like a weird like ragtag band. Like even though they're kind of I don't know you that. The dynamic, like it, it really works. But the kind of way that they've come together is like, oh, you were all kind of vying for the attention of this one woman. Yet, like you're, you're all like best buddies all of a sudden. Like, I, I really like it, and I really like their, their kind of chemistry as a, as a, as a trio, and then obviously as a, as a, a four piece when Van Helsing gets involved. I think, I think, yeah, I, like, I love their aspect of it, and like them. Um, so what yeah like let's let's have a little ch let's have a little chat about um richard e grant and i think within this we can kind of talk about those like asylum sequences and talk about tom tom waits as renfield like mm -hmm. what are you well yeah what is like what what are your feelings and thoughts of 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 richard e grant and that that i don't know the kind of the feelings you get from that, those, yeah, that in inside that asylum, because it's really like I don't know, it's creepy and kind of cool in a way. 
Oh, I love the way the asylum is designed, particularly the people working there have those boxes on their head as though as though it's like to stop uh, their faces from getting attacked by the inmates, I guess. Um, but Richard E. Grant is an interesting performance. It's when he's around Lucy, he's a bit clumsy. He's a bit um, he's a bit not sure of himself. And inside the asylum, he's essentially. <laughs> essentially the um key figure who's going up to renfield and being like oh you're us you're they're gonna have to design a whole new ranking of madness for you just feels uh, he's relishing his position in that place and and what I do well, he's a like morphine addict as well right camaraderie <laughs> of... yeah. yes yeah that's true they have that <laughs> one scene where he's um shooting up yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, he's, like, off his nut, and I kind of, like, I love his, like, skittish energy he has through it. Like, do you know what I mean? He's kind of, like, like especially in those scenes in the asylum, like, the way he's shot, and he's kind of, like, big bulging eyes, and, like, when he's talking to Renfu, he's like, oh, fascinating. And he's like, what about spiders? Spiders eat the flies. Oh, what about sparrows? And, like, Renfu's like, yeah, something, but what about something bigger? Something bigger. And he's like, oh. Yeah, Tom Waits as Renfield, right? He's kind of knocks it out of the park. Like mm. that shot when you first see him and that kind of overhead, like high angle shot and him kind of talking to Dracula, like, my work here is done. Like, as this kind of like stooge for Dracula, I think is like, is, is, is fantastic. Oh, he's, Tom Waits is exceptional as Renfield. It, just that little rasp of master, master, and he's he's just excellent. And I kind of wish we saw a bit more of him, but at the same time, I'm glad for what we did see because it feels like a perfect of perfect just beginning, middle, and end to his character's story. Definitely, and yeah. I think I think uh, we'll see more of the Renfield character next year when we get um when we get the the Christopher Ooh. Holt starring Renfield film which stars my boy Nicolas Cage as Count Dracula so we 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 yeah we'll get more we'll get more Renfield <laughs> um I'm trying to think of any other moments I Something I love about this, I love the stuff in the castle. And I think some of that is like, it feels like it's a chance for them to really like mess around with mm -hmm. some of the kind of effects work they were doing, whether it is um, the shadow play. Like the shadow play especially is great where Dracula's shadow moves independently of him. And it like, it, it's so easily done. They just had like another guy kind of in a in an approximation of the outfit not in the full prosthetics but do you know what I mean like a kind of hat on mm -hmm. and like fingers and a cloak and could like do this stuff and it's just it's just really unsettling and creepy and Francis Ford Coppola said as well like he wanted the kind of costumes to be like he called them the jewels of the of the film and he kind of like spent a lot of the budget on that and I think, like, it very cleverly, like, it just draws so much of your attention. And they very cleverly light 
certain like sets and stuff like that that you don't need a lot of the set do you know what I mean like mm-hmm. there's it'll be like there'll be moments where like you'll be yeah you'll be on a set but then just a whole wall is just shrouded into darkness and it's like for them they're like oh we don't have to worry about that part of the set whatsoever we'll just kind of worry about this part we've got and then like your your eye is drawn to yeah like gary oldman in that kimono and the the booby hair do you know what i mean i know it's uh it's such a great um set it's fantastic and it's also offset by how just simply the laws of physics are all messed up because mm-hmm. Dracula's just using telekinetic abilities, whether it's shattering mirrors or um or knocking over the ink or or shutting the door. And then you've got, yeah, his shadows acting independently and you got liquid dripping upwards. It you just know something's off kilter. Um and it also feels like the walls are closing in on Jonathan Harker as he's in the middle of that. There's that and moment when he's, the, it's a moment when Jonathan's creeping around the castle and he's on the outside mm-hmm. of it, like scaling something and he falls sideways and it's like the <laughs> castle itself. And even when you see the silhouette of the castle from a, from a distance, it looks like a man sat on a throne, like it's like an old decrepit man sat on a throne and it's like really interesting. Like the castle itself feels like a character. Do you know what I mean? It's living, mm-hmm. it's breathing, and it's kind of. I love, I love, I love that aspect of, of of this film. That it's like, I don't know. Yeah, again, it, it comes about as that thing that it feels like everything is servicing the film itself, and and I think it plays into the to the vampiric law, right? In the fact that they need the earth from where they live to kind of like sustain and stuff like that mm. how yeah in the basement they're kind of carting out all the transylvanian earth to keep him alive when he's in london and stuff like that no exactly and it feels like there's no escape for jonathan in that not even in his room because when he's shaving and you got that phenomenal scene where you see him in the mirror but Dracula's hands reaching behind him and there's no reflection being cast in the mirror. It's a great little sequence. Also, fun fact, um, the person whose back you see is Johnny Knoxville. No, what? As, uh, as, 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 yeah, because that, that's done with a double as set. A, yeah, as in um, Keanu's, they did Terminator 2 it where you the mirror image is the actual actor and yeah, yeah, they've yeah. got the double to face that back to it. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Yeah, that was the Jackass star. Amazing. Amazing. Mm. <laughs> I love that. Oh, what? Is that is that, that that's gotta be on the IMDB trivia. I must have skimmed over that. That's amazing. Oh, wicked. Uh, I I learned <laughs> that from the Empire podcast, actually. Oh, is that oh is that one of the uh useless facts or whatever they call it <laughs> they're doing the free fact structure free fact structure yeah okay 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 um is yeah like um so that's the yeah we kind of we've touched upon the castle is there kind of i don't know is there, is there any aspects of this film that we've 
we've kind of missed. Like, I kind of, I, I, I obviously feel like we should definitely one shout out um, the the costume design. Well, they're just the kind of mm. the designer on this film. Uh, yeah, Iki Ishito, who kind of like the way I would kind of uh, position her in this film. She's almost like how how Giga created just the kind of like aesthetic and like visual language of alien it's like that's kind of what she did with this film it's like Mm -hmm. it's like she kind of led the charge of like i'm going to design these costumes and it's like everything else will fall in place after that it felt like a real kind of tone setter do you know what i mean and like Kind of like the the things they were drawing upon. I know that uh, Coppola had kind of seen her because she was the art director on Mishima, um, a story in three chapters, um, and had handled the Japanese poster for Apocalypse Now as well. And they had discussions, um, and she showed well. He showed her uh, a Klimt painting called The Kiss quite early on, and she was like, oh. Mm there's something in that that I see that's really interesting. And she said, like, it was this idea of almost like East meets West. And that's kind of like where they went with a lot of like the production, especially with Dracula and stuff like that. And the stuff he wears, especially at the end where he's kind of got that almost like a high priest robe. That's kind of like, Mm. looks like it's made out of like different squares and stuff like that. Like that, that itself feels like if you ever see like a Klimt painting, it's very much looks like that kind of, yeah, like robe that he wears then. Um, I don't know. Like, yeah. Is it like, is it, what kind of costume pieces like really like burn a hole in your brain, James? Um, well, I'm going to be basic as fuck, but I'm going to go for Dracula's red kimono for when you when he's in the castle, he's old. And just that simple image of Keanu and Gary Oldman walking and the just the long trail being left by the kimono. It feels yeah. like through it all, it's not trying to be of a specific specific to anything. It just feels like what it's it's the its own way of signifying it's this one of a kind world it's this one of a kind uh vision that's being brought together just for this film and it feels very much just um vital to this film to give it breathe it alive and to just give it it's a part of its own identity really yeah, and I think I think that kimono really speaks to something that she talked about with how she wanted Dracula to look, especially when he was a vampire and kind of like on home soil, as it were. She kind of wanted like an uh, agenda and kind of just an a, an overall ambiguity to Dracula. Like, do you know what I mean? It's like mm. it's kind of austere and like there's a masculine quality to it, but there's also quite. Th- there's a femininity to it with the big like train behind it and stuff and it's kind of like and she can't like it kind of gets that thing of dracula just being ambiguous not like kind of out of the realms of 
gender or sexuality or anything like that just ambiguous as to like even being human do you know what I mean obviously he's not like he's this otherworldly <laughs> creature but I think I think she captures that in the costume design and I think Coppola made a real good choice by making that a focal point and kind of I don't know it kind of makes this <laughs> film theatrical yet filmic at the same time and Kind of sounds like you had it really planned out of like, and even the way like, obviously, yeah, everyone else is kind of dressed in like just period setting attire, but there's just choices in like colors and stuff like that. Like with um, Sadie Frost as Lucy, like her, her costumes just keep getting like more vibrant, you know, like when she has that scene where she like has sex with the kind of, uh, beast wolfman like uh dracula like she's in like this orange and then like there's a moment when she's like writhing around on the bed and she's all in the red and stuff like that whereas mina's colors are very like pale and muted and her costuming is is very yeah like signifies the character it's very conservative high necks and Mm-hmm. very tight and like highly strung like the almost like the character herself it's all it's all kind of virginal whereas yeah lucy is like very like oh out there do you know what i mean her green which is like my snake dress and stuff like that it's very like breasty and or yeah sadie frost is very breasty throughout this film it kind of seems like every other scene she's like kind of having a wardrobe malfunction and we're seeing a bit of tit <laughs> Um, so as for other aspects of this film, yeah, what, what have we missed James? I, 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 I feel like we're going to do this film a disservice because you, you could, you could dedicate hours upon hours discussing this film and not even scratch the surface. So mm. a, a, an hour and a half probably isn't enough time, but we, we can't be here all night. Let's be honest. Yeah. I feel like we could just, well, we could just keep picking out items to talk about just from, well, just from like the way from Lucy's death and how it's intercut with Mina's uh, marriage and just the way it goes so theatrical with the blood at the end as though The Shining is trying to make a cameo appearance. Yes. <laughs> but. But it just feels like we're always going to find something because there's so much to talk about this film. It feels like it begs you to look deeper and to just keep looking and looking because Francis and all involved just kept putting so much to bring alive this story in a way that sets it apart so much considering it's about a character that's been adapted hundreds of times in so many different forms so i gotta ask you this is is this film like a is it a romance story kind of tricking us by using genre trappings like is it is it is is it is it it kind of what it sets out to be is it a kind of is it a horror or is this something else entirely um, I think it works as both a horror and a romance film. I mean, you said, is it a romance film that's trying to trick us into thinking it's horror? But which 
yeah, you could say that for horror for horror fans, but I think you could also say the opposite. You could say it's a horror film trying to pose itself as a romance film and to get interested mm-hmm. the people who probably wouldn't be so interested in a horror film. And I know people who are like, oh, this film was my identity in my teens. And I'm sure they would have latched onto the romance aspects because, but they could have latched onto the horror aspects. I think it does so well in both elements and it just, Mm -hmm. well, really satisfies either audience. Yeah, I think it's a film that kind of rightfully has kind of been um, reevaluated and kind of people who maybe have seen it when they're younger. I think a lot of it like is quite kind of interesting. I, I, I listened a while ago now to Mike Munter from the evolution of horror discuss this mm-hmm. film. And he talked about like the fact of the first time him seeing it and kind of like the romance stuff was a bit like seeing it as a teenage boy. It was a bit like, Oh, not for me. But then like, as he's got older, like really loves it. And it's kind of yeah. like that thing of like, yeah, you can you can imagine like teenage boys being like, oh, I thought it was going to be all just blood and guts and stuff like that. And it's kind of, as you kind of mature, it's like, this is, I don't, <laughs> this guy's sound very like a high minded and very, um, I don't know, direct statement. But the, this film to me feels like cinema. Do you know what I mean? This feels like this is filmmaking and it's Mm -hmm. i love it for that i love that like you can you can see you could see the the filmmaking at work but it doesn't like it's not a thing of like it takes you out of it it's like oh this is just adding to the the mood and the the textuality of this film to make it like so great and brings all of the brings all the parts to make the sum really great and fun and that's the thing that is a thing that i don't think we've said about this film is it is it's fun it's two hours it moves along at a clip and mm. i watched it earlier today in preparation for this conversation and i'm not lying to you i could happily and i'm half tempted to when we jump off of this zoom call to fucking watch it again like i I, like because it's it's just there's so much to feast upon this film pun intended (laughs) (laughs) i don't blame you it feels like the kind of film that keeps on giving it's i wasn't well on monday and just to recuperate i thought am i why don't i just watch dracula again and i absolutely loved revisiting it especially so soon after seeing it in the cinema it just felt like coming back to uh, an old friend mm-hmm. and I just uh, just getting myself lost in the gorgeous um, gorgeous well just the gorgeousness of it all from visuals to sound to to the gorgeous people I mean let's be honest oh, yeah. I, it's a sexy cast they're, they're, yeah like, mm. you, you mentioned sound there and I yeah, like sometimes I for somebody who loves music, I always forget to mention the scores for these films, but the the score to this by, uh, I'm going to butcher this name, but um, Wojciech Kilar, uh, Polish composer, is absolutely 
phenomenal. Like it's sound, like it sounds like a found piece of music. Like the the music sounds like they've kind of I don't know pulled something from the late eighteen hundreds or something like that. It kind of it's gothic and it's kind of like that kind of like main theme for the film. It's just like oh, just yes, please, like inject inject it into my ears. Like I absolutely <laughs> love it, and it's kind of it's of a piece. Like I'm I'm not sure how you, you how do you feel about there's a there's a there's a there's like a needle drop track during the uh, during the credits. What what did you did you, did did you catch that when you're in the cinema? I believe it's like uh, oh, what is her name? Uh, um, oh, why can't I think of her name? Uh, Annie, Annie Lennox. Lennox. Yeah, Annie. Yeah, the Annie Lennox track. What did you What did you make of that? <laughs> because I, I feel like the film up until that point kind of holds a, a tone and feels like a film out of time. Whereas when, when that track comes in, I'm kind of a bit like. Oh, I kind of wish I'd like I like when I watch it on DVD now or yeah Blu-ray. I, I kind of turn it off before that track. I like the song itself, but in the kind of experience of the film, I kind of uh, I, I, I'm like no, I kind of want this to feel old, old timey. I'll be honest, I haven't actually listened to it. It's um, when I saw the film in cinemas, I was just there listening the old timey music as the credits played and i was just like okay i want to sit in this but i really need a wee oh. and then uh, after the what well, i watched it at home i well i didn't know about the annie lennox song until like earlier today when i was doing a bit of research i was like oh i should probably have a listen to it and i <laughs> never did <'cause laughs> i guess i'm a professional but not that professional i guess but yeah, and I I can't comment on it that song. Sorry. Nice. It, it is all right. Um so this film was nominated for four Academy Awards. Um do you know do you, do you, do you know how many Academy Awards this film won, James? Without uh, looking. Don't look, don't look. I'm going to test you if you don't know. Do you know off the top of your head yes or no? Um yes because my DVD says Oh, yes. Uh, yeah, so this uh, this film was nominated for four. So best costume design, best sound editing, best makeup, and best art direction. And won three of those awards. So won best costume, best sound, and best makeup. All rightfully as well, right? Absolutely. <laughs> like... If I it's a bit of a cliche, like you don't nominate the genre film for much other than technical, but this really deserved the technical awards. Oh, what? Yeah. One, like, I'm, I'm not sure what it would have been up against for best art direction without kind of like, uh, stalling this at that time. But I bet you it's not a film that we talk about to this day. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> um, oh, um, uh, it lost to Howard's End. There you go. <laughs> so yeah, I I don't really hear a lot of talk about Howard's End. So 
Yeah, I suppose so. There you go. But then, yeah, Howard then was probably going to win because it is a uh, period drama. They yeah. seem to be a shoe in for those kind of awards, even though Bram Stoker's Dracula could be argued is a period drama, uh, is a horror, is a romantic tale, is 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 a kind of melange of high camp goodness that uh, that that makes such a fun film so um yeah is is is, is, is that it? Is, is is there anything we've missed obviously there's ne- inevitably going to be stuff that we've missed with this film james but is, is there anything that's kind of burning in your brain that needs to, needs to get out before we before we start to to make uh, make our way out of transylvania and try and get back to london um, I don't think so. Um, what about you? Do you have anything in particular? No, there's nothing. There's not like, I'm sure, I'm sure I'll be woken up at three o'clock in the morning, mm-hmm. uh, just drenched in sweat, filled with regret of like, oh, I should have mentioned that. Uh, <laughs> but that is my life as a, as a whole anyway. So before I get to that point in my life, there's, um, a few things we need to do before we go. And the first one is, yes. Did you manage to find any Coppola connections within this film? Is there people who worked in front of or behind the camera who worked with the Coppolas elsewhere in their filmography? James, did you manage to find any? I found one, but it's tenuous. It's going full seven degrees of Kevin Bacon on it. Um, Let's do it. Okay, so this film stars Anthony Hopkins and Gary Oldman, both Oscar winners, and they won their Oscar. (laughs) They won Oscars for playing Hannibal Lecter and Winston Churchill, roles which were previously inhabited not to an Oscar nomination by Brian Cox. And Brian Cox, as we all know, stars in Succession, and he has many children vying to succeed him in that show, including Roman, played by Kieran Culkin. Now, I first became aware of Kieran Culkin during a very memorable turn in Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, where the main villain was played by Jensen Schwartzman. I, 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 do you know what? You could have got there quicker. You could, Brian Cox as well. Brian Cox is also in, um, Rushmore as the, as the, the, the principal of Rushmore Academy and is in adaptation with Nicolas Cage. So, uh, (laughs) there you go. There's, there's my kind of beautiful mind brain working all the time. Uh, I'll read off the Coppola connections I've got here. There's um, there's some obvious one. Fred Ruse, who's a producer on this film, is a long-time producing partner with Francis Ford Coppola. That's kind of by the by. Um, so Winona Ryder plays Kim in Edward Scissorhands, which Stephanie Schwartzman was the art department researcher for. Um, Keanu Reeves is in Between Two Ferns, the movie, as is Jason Schwartzman. Uh, Carrie Elwes uh, dipped his toe back into the world of vampires by uh, featuring in the film Shadow of the Vampire, which uh, stars Willem Dafoe and John Malkovich, which I believe is about the making of Nosferatu, um, but is actually produced one of the rare times that he's produced a film and is not in the film by Nicolas Cage. Um, 
Tom Waits is in five other Francis Ford Coppola films and provides music for the film One from the Heart. Um, storyboard artist Peter Ramsey, who I mentioned earlier, actually went on to be one of several directors of Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, which obviously Nicolas Cage uh, plays Spider-Man Noir. And Monica Belushi, who plays one of Dracula's wives, is in The Sorcerer's Apprentice and appears in one season of Mozart in the Jungle, which is created by Jason Schwartzman and Roman Coppola. That is all I've got for Cope Connections for this week. Um, I'm sure there's more, but um, time is fleeting and sometimes I cannot click on every single one person's name on IMDb because I need to live a life, guys. If you've got any, hit me up. Caged in pod on all the social medias. Come on. Uh, so let's get to rating this film, James. And the way that we do this here is we ask... What would be the perfect wine pairing for this film? Uh, I'm glad that's a rating thing rather than an actual wine recommendation because I am shit at that. <laughs> but let me say, you are getting the bloodiest of red wine to watch yes. this film and you are absolutely paying top shelf. Lovely stuff. Deserves it. Yes, this is this is this is a top shelf film. This is almost a a vintage. Do you know what I mean? This is if if I was in a restaurant, I would be happy to turn over that page on the wine menu because this is this has got some lovely kind of this is full bodied. This has got like kind of I don't know, a sweet yet bitter aftertaste that you kind of can't get enough of. And that kind of is this film. It's kind of there's a sweetness to it. There's a there's a hard, sharp edge to it, and you, you you kind of I don't know. You keep wanting to go back for another glass. I think that's that's that that's a way that you would describe Bram Stoker's Dracula. Um, so let me ask you, James, based on this film alone, are the Coppola's the greatest film family of all time? You got two. You got two of the Coppola's kind of stepping up to the mark here. You got kind of. Roman Coppola, like coming in kind of last minute, having like Francis having like arguments with the effects departments about like, no, that's not how I want it. Kind of, and then kind of really pulling the bag out to, to, yeah, to get all those kind of like practical effects like done so well and kind of nailing it. And obviously, you've got Francis at the helm of this. Surely. Is, 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 is that enough to, to mark them as the greatest film fan of all time? I mean, if you're going by one film, this is a damn good one to base it off of. Uh, um, if they're not the greatest film family of on, all time on the basis of this film, they're a damn strong contender for it. Okay, okay. It was, it was a bit, that was a bit, that was a bit, there's a bit, a uh, bit, bit politician, a bit diplomatic there, but I'm going to take that as a yes, James. Oh, I'm absolutely. Gonna, <laughs> so let me ask you this which coppola family member would you keep but in doing so you get rid of the entire filmography of the rest of the family ah uh, oh this is a tough one um i'd honestly look francis has made some of the greatest films of all time but mm -hmm. for me nicholas cage has been a part of films that are 
so personal to me and mean the world. And I cannot fathom losing the likes of Mandy, Pig, Raising Arizona, Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. I gotta go for Nicolas Cage, in all honesty. Sorry, Francis, but I need Spider-Man Noir and Red over over um, Renfield. That that is that is that is absolutely fine. Like uh, I I I I ain't gonna argue with that. Uh, yeah, Nicholas Cage is, is 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 a great choice, and I, I like your rationale. Sometimes you've got to be selfish with these. Mm-hmm. Some people think about the mark on on Hollywood history, but it's it's what your heart tells you, and um, that's uh, yeah, that, that, that's where you went, and that, that's what I respect. That's what I respect. Any previous guests who are listening who went for the uh, went, went for the mark on Hollywood, fuck you. All right, I'm saying. <laughs> Yeah, no. <laughs> I'm joking. I love you all. Uh, but I don't. Whoa, 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 whoa. On that bombshell, I need, need to ask you possibly the most important question on this podcast. What does Bill Murray say to Scott Johansson at the end of Lost in Translation? Um, I think he says, Hey, Mumbo, Mumbo Italiano. Hey, go, go. Yes, yes, yes. And then they boogie off into the night and they never see each other again. Oh. I think, yeah. Hell of a that's goodbye. Good. That's great, yeah. I, th- I think you might have nailed it there. I think I, th- I think the uh, the lip readers and the... Do you know what? You might, you might, have, you might have nailed it there, James. Um, so let me ask you... Um, no, no. So, why, 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 why am I acting like there's another question on this? Uh, before, yeah, before I let you go, obviously, um, yeah, you, you, you're podcasting. You, you're, you're always writing stuff about films. Uh, where's the best place to keep up to date with all of that? Where, well, obviously, you, you appear on a lot of podcasts as well. So, yeah, where, where, where's the best place for people to keep up to date with what you're doing and where to find everything you're doing? Well, thanks for having me on. Thanks to anybody who listens to me. Um, if I haven't put you off from listening to more of me or following me, I'm over at Twitter and Letterboxd at RoddersJ04. That's spelt with two Ds. And I write reviews at thereviewingrodders.co.uk. I also put any podcast appearances or articles I write or whatever on there. Um, so, yeah, come check it out. and. Have a happy Halloween. Ooh, well, thank you so much for coming and making some Coppola connections with me, James. Anytime. <laughs> it's okay. We could we could just we could just do this for, for, for eternity, right? <laughs> See, imagine if Gary Oldman had said I crossed oceans of time to find you. (laughs) 
there we have it guys another film down another vote for yes for the Coblers being the greatest film family of all time a massive thank you once again to James Rodriguez for joining me and a massive thank you for you for listening remember that love never dies as do the Coppola family I'm sure I'll be covering this family long into my twilight years if only I had immortality so I could cover this family forever and ever until the sun burns out and we all die uh, as for next week on the podcast I'll be talking to Kevin Lahane uh, one half of the excellent best bits podcast and a screenwriter in his own right to discuss the 1992 again we're sticking in 1992 uh, the john carpenter um uh, memoirs of an invisible man which stephanie schwartzman was the art department researcher oh yeah that's how granular we get on this podcast we we look at people who are part of the coppola family who do very small insular tiny minuscule roles to get the length and breadth of this family's uh, mark on hollywood um i'm sure if you've listened to this podcast uh, before you would you would know that that's how a granular would go. Sometimes we cover films that uh, we find out don't actually have a Coppola connection at all. There is just uh, some false information on Wikipedia or IMDb. But there we go. That's how we roll here. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch uh, with me, the podcast, you can do so at Cajun Pod on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Letterbox, and TikTok, or you can drop me an email, which is CagedInPod at gmail.com and if you'd like to give me a little bit of money and support the podcast you can do so over at patreon.com forward slash pod or you can rate review and subscribe on apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever you're listening to this right now so as ever guys i've been petra Batsilos, your guide through the crazy world of the coppola family tree remember to keep it caged in and i'll catch you next time Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This podcast is presented by the Breadcrumbs Collective, home of the Pod Charles Cinecast, Caged In Coppola Connections, A Drip Town Limery, Maine, Franchised, and many more to come. Our shows are all presented ad-free and made possible by listeners like you. 
Please support our shows by subscribing, leaving ratings and reviews, and becoming patrons at patreon.com. If you'd like to learn more about breadcrumbs, head over to breadcrumbscollective.com. Breadcrumbs. It's more than a podcast network. It's family.